Welcome to episode 246 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Sunday, June the 7th, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. These are unprecedented times. Um, as long as I've lived, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, as long as you've lived, you've never seen anything like this. Uh, the bike industry, the bike world has seen nothing like this. That's bike industry veteran Jay Townley talking about Bike Boom 2020. I'm Colton Reed, welcoming you to another long lockdown special of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Jay Townley's perspective is second to none because, for a start, he's a data freak, still crunching numbers after an amazing 63 years in the industry. And he was also up close and personal with the market-dominating American bike company during the 1970s bike boom, the annual sales figures for which have never been bettered not even during the mountain bike years. Jay worked for the Schwinn Bicycle Company for 24 years. He was the youngest vice president who wasn't a member of the Schwinn family. Now, over the years, he went on to hold many other positions and is still the go-to guy for divining trends from bicycle-shaped spreadsheets. So I was glad to be able to pick his brains about both bike booms. Many sectors of the economy have been badly affected by lockdowns, social distancing and quarantines. But after like five or more years of poor bike sales, what Jay calls a funk of flatness, April and May this year just exploded with widespread reports of bikes selling out. Well, like toilet paper, as some media outlets would have it. Shimano's stock price hit a record high at the end of May, with bike part sales from this bellwether brand going through the roof. It's now a market-leading behemoth, but Shimano was once a minnow. The Japanese company started its steady rise to domination in the 1970s, when Kozo Shimano visited Schwinn on a speculative sales trip hoping to sell derailleurs to an America that was only really just beginning to ride with these fancy European devices. And you can hear the inside skinny on that scoping sales trip on today's show, because Jay was there, front and centre. So, hi, I've got uh, Jay Townley with me today. Now, Jay has been on the show a number of times before, so anybody who's listened to Jay We'll know that we go through his uh, long history in, in the bike industry. But for people who are new to the show, let's let's go through that history. So first of all, Jay, is it 
uh, terribly rude of me to ask you your age. How old are you, Jay? Uh, it's not rude at all. I'm 76 years old. And you are, a, I mean, I'm a veteran of the bike industry. So what does that make you? I mean, how, is there a super veteran class? <laughs> how long have you been know. working in the industry, Jay? I started in a bike shop in 1957. Um, went to work for Hazel Park Bicycle and Skate Exchange in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and worked there actually uh, part-time, full-time on the east side of St. Paul, uh, through a couple of years of college. And uh, I got uh, married in that process and ended up going to work for Schwinn in 1966. So my relationship with that shop was uh, over a long period of time. Um, and the, the two owners were, I would consider, brilliant. Because, um, and I don't need to go into the detail other than to tell you that uh, they ended up founding the Park Tool Company. Um, they were starting to make uh, limited, uh, actually, they were making hooks to hang bicycles um, in 1964, 65. But they, they ran them together, um, building a very large uh, building. Um, on the same street we were located on White Bear Avenue on the east side of St. Paul, but out toward where the new expressway was going in. Um, and so they built a large facility that had room in the back, a very large manufacturing area in the back, uh, where they continued um, the or building out the Park Tool Company while they ran uh, Hazel Park Cycle Center, uh, which on the retail side became two stores and at one point was Schwinn's largest dealer. Um, and so they, they were very good at the retail business, but then as the park tool business grew, um, they sold the retail stores, uh, to two, two employees, two different employees. But it's still existing or it's long gone? No, the, the retail, the retail stores are gone. Um, the last one closed, oh my, it must be over 20 years ago. Um, however, Park Tool thrives and is uh, owned and operated by Eric Hawkins, who you may have met at, um, uh, he comes to England once a year for the large gathering of uh, one of the large, one of the distributors um, in the UK, but uh, their distributor, obviously, for Park Tool. But Eric Hawkins is the son of one of the founders. And so that was, because I want to talk to you today about the bike boom. So Hazel Park was clearly before the bike boom when you were working for them. And Park Tool was was a wee bit before the, the bike boom too. So that was quite prescient of, of, to, to make a bicycle tool company before the bike boom hit, so for like four years beforehand. So they must have like been, you know, all, all, uh, all boats rise up with the, the rising tide. So all bike companies at that point kind of did good. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So tell me about the boom then. So, because you, you, when the boom actually hit, you were a, a Schwinn executive. Well, um, I started, as I said, in 1966. Uh, I well remember 1971 uh, because uh, if you go back a few years, 1968 
was a record year for the industry at about 7.5 million units total. Um, Schwinn held its first national convention of authorized Schwinn dealers in Chicago at the Conrad Hilton Hotel in 1968, which I have vivid memories of. Um, but it was the first time that uh, Schwinn had gathered all of its dealers in uh, in one place with one big show that lasted uh, three or four days. Uh, and I was, at the time I was sales promotion manager, I was very much involved in uh, the the process of producing this show uh, that at, at the time featured Bob Keeshan, who um, you probably don't know was Captain Kangaroo um, the, from CBS fame, but he was, he was the personality that Schwinn advertised with um, on television for many years. Um, and so the bike boom uh, was kind of a big surprise. We had done this 1968. The industry uh, spiked at 7.4 million. Then if you look at the charts, uh, it went down to about 7 million in 69. We were trying to figure out what was going on. 1970 was about 6.8 million. Um, and we were starting to get worried what was happening out in the market. And then came 1971, and uh, Schwinn was sold out by May of that year. And the, the industry in 1971 sold uh, 8.8 .8 million units, um, you know, well in excess of the 68 uh, record of 7.5 million. Um, and we were scrambling. We honestly, the industry, Schwinn, we weren't sure what was going on. But um, at the time, the Schwinn Bicycle Company was a domestic house that was a make-to-order house. So we ran this big factory uh, for the day, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it is considered small now, but it was a big factory in the time. Um, at the time. And um, every dealer order that came in was scheduled for production and shipped to a dealer within two weeks. So I'm sure this is the way Raleigh operated at the time in Nottingham, uh, received dealer orders and it, 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 it you know, built um, bicycles to the order of the dealer, um, loaded them up mostly in trucks because there were very few dealers who were big enough. You could put them into, into rail cars. Uh, but uh, we ran this, you know, build to order operation. So when May came in, uh, in, uh, 1971, the big surprise, um, the, the Schwinn sales department, Jack Smith was the sales manager, uh, came up with a plan, uh, he and his staff, uh, that the then vice president marketing, uh, Ray Birch or longtime Schwinn, uh, marketing, uh, VP, uh, Ray Birch, who was the boss of the marketing division, um, agreed to an allocation plan. So in 1971, uh, when this all hit, and we were trying to figure out what was going on and we were sold out in May. Um, the, the plan was based on um, algorithms of the day. And it was uh, the dealer's sales of the previous year were the factor that was uh, went into the formula so that the dealer would receive that percentage share of Schwinn's production at capacity for the year. Um, the dealer didn't have to take that. They could uh, refuse portions of it, but um, every quarter, Jack Smith's department sent out to the authorized dealers after, of course, May, 
Um, so we were into the, the last half of the year. But this continued on through 1974. Uh, every quarter, the dealer received their allocation and uh, their shipping schedule, and they would adjust it uh, if they wanted less. And in most years, they didn't. They took everything that was available. Um, and so um, we also uh, were able to adjust the mix, which is the, you know, the, uh, the mix between the low price and the high price bikes um, in, the, in the way we sorted through and, and, uh, and ran the numbers for the allocation. Um, some of this was also based on the popularity because what was selling were in our line were the 27 inch wheel derailleur equipped 10 speed lightweights. Um, our varsities, our continentals, and our superiors. And so uh, that's what was in demand. That's what dealers wanted. That's what consumers wanted. Um, and so we would uh, make sure, Jack would make sure that uh, he did what he could to adjust. And then that all went downstream to the, to the production planning people uh, and to the purchasing department. So you can imagine this operation uh, that was relatively used to the way things were going, had been surprised in 1968. That was the first year Schwinn made and sold a million bicycles. And so you had two years of, of down market, and then 1971 comes out of nowhere. It exceeds market expectations by a good margin. Uh, we're sold out by May, and so um, we've got this allocation system that we're operating on. And Schwinn then moved um, to expand. Today, it's it's a three month turnaround because at least because you've got to get the, the the orders in into Asia. It's going to take three months to get them back on the water to to get them here. But but at that time, could Schwinn have a much shorter time frame because you were making the bikes? We we were making the bikes, Carlton, and we also were purchasing worldwide. So. Um, we, in order to make the Varsity and the Continental that I described, and the Superior, uh, which were 10-speed derailleur-equipped, lightweight bicycles, 27 one-and-a-quarter-inch uh, tires and, and uh, appropriate wheels, we um, had to buy on the world market because the domestic suppliers, while they could support the middleweight bicycles, that had come into vogue after World War II and were the U.S. bicycle industry's answer to the English lightweight, um, with all due respect. <laughs> uh, the, the chief competitors in the, in the um, period uh, after World War II were um, the 26 uh, uh, one and an eighth inch, American sizing, obviously, but were the 26-inch lightweights um, that you were used to in England um, that were primarily made by Raleigh and were uh, imported into the U.S. under the Marshall Plan or the successors to it. Um, and so uh, they were coming in uh, at very low duties to the U.S. market. And the answer that the American industry had um, when, when we, the war ended, uh, the industry was making balloon-tired bikes two and an eighth inch uh, uh, tired, uh, they're called balloon tired bikes. Um, and as a kid, that's what I got. My first bike was uh, a Schwinn Phantom, which was one of these you know big balloon tired bicycles. Um, 
the, the paperboy bikes. The paperboy. Thank you. The paperboy bike. Um, the Black Phantom. You know the. So, they were up against the English lightweight, and the answer the industry came up with was Frank W. Schwinn, literally, who was a great engineer, uh, second generation, was running the operation at the time. Literally designed the middleweight, the one and and uh, three quarter one point seven five. Um, compromise between the lightweight and the balloon. And he gave all of the patents and designs for the middleweight uh, bicycle to the industry for free because he wanted to combat the, the influx of, uh, of uh, English lightweights. So um, the middleweight was born. So my second bike was a Schwinn Speedster uh, bought from the bike shop I ended up working for. My father, my father traded in, or did he? He he, uh, he had the balloon tired bike, uh, and he said you're, it was time for the middleweight, which I begged him to get. Um, so, uh, over the evolution uh, in the period from sixty three to sixty seven, probably uh, after I arrived at Schwinn, um, Alfred uh, and Frank Berlando down in the engineering department. And you've heard Al Fritz's name before. I'm sure you've done some interviews around Al. Um, Al Fritz and Frank Berlando came up with the, with the, sting, with the Stingray. Um, and so that became, from the middleweight, that became the next big thing in the market. Um, and that quickly led to um, Frank Berlando convincing Al and Frank W. Schwinn, and eventually Frank V. Schwinn, his son, to uh, do a line of lightweight bikes, true derailleur-equipped lightweights, the Varsity, the Continental, 26 and 27-inch lightweights, equipped with 10-speed derailleurs. And Frank was a former, uh, Frank just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, Frank was a former Olympic cyclist, a professional cyclist, and also a very brilliant degreed engineer. Um, and Berlando, um, laid out for Al Fritz in about 1962-63 this idea for um, a an American-made derailleur-equipped true lightweight, a 27 high 27-inch wheel high pressure with a derailleur. And a lot of people didn't know what derailleurs were. Um, they weren't made here. You couldn't get the hubs you needed here. You couldn't get the uh, gangs or the cogs. Uh, you couldn't get any of the base components. Um, but Frank, because he rode on the last Olympic team um, bef uh, before World War II and the first Olympic team after World War II, Frank was that good. And he went, he served in the war. He served in the, the Pacific Theater uh, in the engineering uh, corps. Uh, Frank was such an athlete that he made both Olympic teams before and after the war. Um, so he made stuff. And he was a road racer as well as a track racer. So um, Al then went to uh, Schwinn's purchasing division that was buying mostly domestic stuff. And in 64, 65, they started to bring in large quantities of derailleurs from Huray, who is no longer in, in business, but a French firm, Maillard, uh, Cogs and Hubs, Weinmann for brakes out of Switzerland and Germany. Um, and at the time, the Japanese were just starting to ramp up the bike business. And a fellow named Kozo Shimano showed up uh, in, the, in the Schwinn 
purchasing waiting room. Um, and Kozo, before he passed, told many stories about uh, with his broken English trying to sell his derailleurs or his hubs. But um, Schwinn was right at the point where it started to import um, first modest, then very large quantities of these components required for these sophisticated uh, lightweights. And they were just at the right time because they were bicycles that were not for 12, 13 year old kids. Well, if you were big, you could ride them, but um, it was a multi-frame. Your choices of uh, 19, 21, 24 to 25, 27 inch frame, 27 inch high pressure wheeled derailleur equipped lightweights. And as this bike boom took off, it was adult bikes uh, primarily. And um, Schwinn through Berlando, this brilliant engineer, um, made a determination that we would use our design derailleur, our design cog, our hubs, etc. They were Schwinn approved. So we didn't just put a Huray derailleur on or a Simplex derailleur or a Shimano derailleur. Um, as the bike boom ramped up, you were getting dealers in the market were getting uh, Schwinn Varsities with a derailleur that was at the time a Schwinn design that could have been made by Huray in France, by Shimano, or by Suntour, with brakes that could have been made by Weinman, because again, they were Schwinn approved design, Weinman in uh, Europe, Shimano, or Diacampi, and so on. Um, we were doing so much volume that uh, what Frank did was his engineers designed the componentry and approved it, and then we were able to get multiple sources around the world high-quality sources, to make the same componentry. So um, to your scenario, yes, we went um, in the course of this bike boom from uh, the period starting in 19, well, prior to this, we were, we were bringing in and making these varsities um, in 69, 68, 69. But when the bike boom hit, Schwinn Purchasing was able to uh, branch out and use all available sources on a global basis to uh, bring in the componentry. And you're correct. Then we were dealing with the um, long lead time scenarios of getting this componentry from Europe, Japan, into the U.S. market, into this factory, because we were still making bicycles to order for dealers. Now, at this point, I guess we ought to point out for people that there's no specialized there's no Trek, there's no Cannondale, there's none of these brands that we now associate with with the American bike market and that you know absolutely took over the world when mountain bikes came along. So Schwinn was in at this period was in such a dominant position, a, a, a monolith, you, you could say. Uh, that is a correct way to describe it. Um, we uh, in the fifties when I was working in the bike shop. Um, Ray Birch had been hired by F.W. Schwinn in the 50s um, from a company called Wizard in Detroit. And he, uh, Frank W. brought Ray in specifically to clean up Schwinn distribution. And what Ray did was um, taking something that he was aware of that was new. He developed a franchise system before franchising was popular. You know, it was before McDonald's. 
there was in the marketing world um, in academia the the development of the idea of the franchise. So Ray brought, brought franchising to Schwinn, and uh, when I worked for Hazel Park, and after I came to work for Schwinn in Chicago, bicycle shops that that carried Schwinn product were franchise dealers. So there were requirements you had to meet. Uh, there were you had to be of high quality. You had to give service. You had to stock parts. Um, and Schwinn went through a process of winnowing out the. Well, it's been written this way, and, it, and, I, and again, in these times, I hate to use the term, but the funeral parlors, um, which, by the way, back in the day, funeral parlors were also tended to be uh, furniture, uh, uh, housing, household furniture sellers. Um, but Schwinn had, uh, I think when I came to work there, they had 15,000 dealers on the books, and they had started to winnow them down, um, and the bike boom accelerated that process, but uh, what we had was a core of authorized dealers, so there was a semblance and order to the process. There was service training. There was sales training. There uh, was store design assistance, which, again, is a long story unto itself, but this was all evolving um, just prior to this bike boom and then during the boom years. And um, this is all because Ray Birch, uh, again, another brilliant guy, um, I would say certifiably a genius, Ray developed franchising, and then he also was the architect of the Schwinn distribution system, which evolved, again, just prior to the bike boom, but was primarily a product of something else that we could cover in another call, which is the Schwinn antitrust case. Because at the time, overlapping all of this, um, from the period uh, 1958 to 1968, Schwinn went through the long at at the time the longest antitrust suit with the federal government uh, on record, and ended up in 68 winning in the Supreme Court. And the end result of that was that Schwinn was able to keep its franchise dealers called authorized dealers at the time, but keep its franchise dealers because the whole legal dispute was over Schwinn's. Um, legal right to put a dealer on or take them off. And in turn, Schwinn also was encouraged by the Supreme Court to integrate forward, i.e. own its wholesale distribution. And so um, that was in full process when this boom hit. So Schwinn had uh, the beginnings of the modern distribution system we know today in the bike business that every one of these other names you mentioned had adopted, has adopted up to this point. And that's simply brands and manufacturers owning wholesale distribution centers around a country, around a market. And then um, a system uh, where you um, have authorized dealers now, they're the product of what Ray developed as the franchise dealers. Um, again, there's a long history as to how that occurred. But um, you're quite correct. Uh, the the Schwinn Bicycle Company had all these pieces together and was the uh, premier brand, uh, if you will, the uh, more than a luxury. It was the premier brand in the U.S. bicycle market. And going in, we probably had a 25% market share. So um, the competition that evolved during the bike boom is one of the key changes to the to the American bicycle business. 
because um, of the who they were, the competitors to Schwinn that evolved during the bike boom. And who were the competitors before Specialized Trek, Cannondale? Who, who, who were the main people uh, in, say, the late 60s, early 70s? Um, the primary competitor domestically was Ross. And then you had, there were nine domestic manufacturers um, in addition to Schwinn. There was uh, a group that sold the mass merchants, uh, the, the uh, Huffy, Murray, Ohio. There were a group, including Columbia um, and Ross, that were selling to the bike, uh, the bike trade, as it was called, the bike shops, competing with Schwinn. Um, and then uh, there were private label manufacturers. And I don't remember all the names, but there were there were at least nine domestic houses. And import was only at the top. You know, it was the Peugeot, the, if you will, today, it would have been the Pinarellos. Uh, those, those brands that came in um, when the boom started um, were for the aficionados, for the, for the few racers there were in the country the Peugeots, uh, of course, Raleigh. Um, and the import uh, was a very small piece of the market. The primary competitors that Schwinn had were the Columbias, um, the Rosses, and quite frankly, their systems were not as sophisticated. They didn't have the authorized dealer networks or the franchise dealers. They didn't have the distribution. Um, they did not have uh, the product development. So they didn't have their Al Fritz's, Frank Berlando's, uh, Ray Birch's, and later John Nielsen, who developed the parts and accessories program for Schwinn. Um, so they didn't have the talent and certainly didn't have the product to compete with what Schwinn was, had developed up through uh, the 1970 period and was there ready to take on the bike boom starting in 1971. Now, during the boom, that all changed as to who those foreign competitors were. So the, do you think the boom is, in effect, given us the industry we have today in that the Tractor Specialized, the Candale, all those, 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 those brands, they all come up roughly post-boom, I mean, but have come up because of the boom. So you've got Sinyard, Mike Sinyard of Specialized, you know, he gets in the industry at the end of the bike boom, so like 74, 75, and, and, and same for Trek. So it was the boom that changed the industry. I would agree. Um, Mike is a good example. Mike Sinyard, um, you know, you've, you've heard his story. He went and figured out how he could bring in foreign componentry and had this wonderful VW bus. He traveled around Southern and Northern California selling out of his bus, uh, Campignola and, you know, and other high-end componentry. Um, Trek actually got its start, you're right, during this period, but Trek got its start as a retailer. Trek, Trek did not manufacture um, till, oh, I think after the boom. Um, but Dick Burke was partnered with um, Bevel Hogg, and one other guy, um, French, Tom French. And they started um, a, they imported bikes, lug frame lightweight bikes, and uh, started a chain of bike shops that ran from Wisconsin all the way down into Southern Illinois, all the way down to Urbana. And um, a guy that knows the history of all this is, of course, John Burke, 
because his father Dick was you know the the architect, uh, but also um, Ray Keener hmm. um, worked for the retail store down in Urbana, um, and so he knows the history. But yeah, Trek got its start in the bike business as uh, a bike shop owner and importer. Um, and then that that evolved to uh, just toward the the money and the the financial piece um, came out of the bike boom, but uh, led to very shortly thereafter the bike boom led to the, uh, the the bicycle manufacturing process and the and the Trek name. So you're correct. Your your analogy uh, or your your uh, looking at the bike boom as the incubator. Uh, for what became Schwinn's competitors and the bike brand standing today, uh, along with what came after the the mountain bike, you know, the evolution of the mountain bike and so on. But yeah, Trek and Specialized, um, their origins, the seeds uh, and the beginnings uh, were out of the bike boom. So today, Schwinn still exists. You know, it, it's gone through multiple owners, multiple bankruptcies, um, it no longer makes in this country apart from like one bike they've got now made by Detroit Bikes coming up, being sold through Walmart. But the other companies that you were mentioning there, you know, don't exist. I mean, I think Huffy was making basketball stuff, wasn't it? And then uh, Ross certainly doesn't exist as a, as a mainstream brand anymore. So these new upstart companies came in. How come Schwinn couldn't just survive through through till now as a as a, a you know like a, a, a in effect a Schwinn owned um, company what happened to the family what happened to the brand that 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 made it fall by the wayside well that, that's a long story uh, it is, sorry it is a long story uh, I know the story but I, I I apologize can you somehow condense it without going into into the various machinations around the failures at the top of the company yeah I I think I can. Um, the it starts with Frank V. Schwinn, third generation, was the head of the company for the development years. His father passed in '64. Frank W. Schwinn passed away from cancer in, in 1964. Um, Frank V. took over the company. Now Frank Francis Valentine Schwinn has been short sheeted by a lot of people um, because um, it was. Frank V that had the insight to not only guide the company forward, but he was uh, he was a master at making or or uh, creating a situation where uh, Ray Birch. Now remember, I'm, I'm saying these guys are certifiable geniuses, and I think that's true. I can I can back it up. Um, I worked for Ray, and then later worked for Al Fritz, who became executive vice president of the company. Um, Frank V. Schwinn not only figured out how to get Ray and Al to work together, but he also um, took a third uh, really dynamic, smart guy, John Nielsen, who FW had brought into the company uh, to develop parts and accessories, which goes with the wholesale business. Um, and uh, John was a very unique personality. He came from Denmark from a, a bike manufacturing family um, without going into the background. He's a very imposing man. He was almost seven foot tall um, and uh, was had a, a really interesting personality. 
But if Frank Frank V was able to get all three of these guys to work together, plus some other geniuses he had floating around the, the manufacturing side, um, and he kept them going in the same direction in harness, not not fighting and stalling out the company. So um, when Frank had his down the road, when Frank had his heart attack and had to retire, um, that genius for collaboration in our corporate structure just never came back again. Not to that extent. I mean, I watched Frankie work for many years and um, I served on the executive committee uh, for long enough to know what, you know, how he was able to make his executives work together and how he quelled dissent and dealt with it. And he did it with a gentle hand. He's a very smart man. Um, so it starts with the generational change and the fact that, that Frank V. Schwinn was very much um, involved in keeping the company stable and moving in a direction, taking the best ideas from these guys. Um, the simple fact is that uh, at the end of the bike boom, Schwinn went through two, two very traumatic periods. It survived one and didn't survive the other. And during the bike boom, one of the things we did was imported about a quarter of a million bikes sold under the Schwinn approved label. We bought those bikes from National, Panasonic, and from Bridgestone in Japan. But because of the parts division, we were very much aware of a guy called Tony Lowe, or named Tony Lowe. Tony Lowe uh, and his wife, uh, his first wife, <laughs> um, started uh, a company called Specs which was a Taiwanese um, trading house for parts and accessories. And John Nielsen, in developing the Schwinn Parts and Accessories Program, um, immediately found Tony. And he introduced Tony Lowe to Al Fritz. And this was prior to King Lou coming on the scene and Tony and King getting together. So, in other words, we had connections. Remember, we were importing from every major brand, including Campanello for our Paramount lines, um, in the world in order to produce bicycles during the bike boom. So we had our feelers out, our connections out. We were, we were viable. We were a big deal because we were a big buyer. Um, Schwinn overbuilt during the bike boom. Um, the manufacturing group rightly so, said we need more capacity. We built a third plant in Chicago to make just frames and forks, or just frames primarily. And you might recall that one of Schwinn's great attributes and then one of the problems that it, it had after the bike boom is uh, the frame it made. Uh, it was heavy. It was heavy because uh, it was a unique flash welding process, the only manufacturer to use it in North America. Um, and it required use of a 1008 carbon steel. So it was 18 gauge. Now, what I'm platting about, prattling about here is it, it was heavy <laughs> um, because of the process. You, couldn't, you could not uh, make a lug frame bike out of it. I suppose you could, but it would be extremely difficult. Um, we knew how to make lug frame bikes because we made Paramounts. You know, we made uh, top, of the, top of the line bicycles for the Olympic teams and for uh, professional competitive racers, but they were hand-built. Mm. They were one-offs. 
They were built, they were custom bikes that were built to order. Um, so we knew how to do it. We just didn't know how to mass produce it. Um, at the end of the bike boom, and when you look at your charts, uh, in 1975, the market dropped from 14.1 million total units, import and domestic. Last year, the bike boom, 74, 75, the market was 7.3 million. It sheared 50%. Mm-hmm. And it stayed down in 76, 77, 78. Um, we didn't need the capacity. We were running three shifts. We had over 3,000 workers in Chicago, and we had three plants. So the mindset at the time was, and Frankie fought this. He he basically said, you guys got to get real about this. But the the drivers and the, the the vice presidents and the the guys in the company said it's going to come back. It's going to come back. And so when the suggestion was made, let's get rid of the the third plant. Let's bring frame manufacturing back into the original two plant operation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was ignored. The manufacturing guys had a lot of sway. God bless them. They were fine people. But what they were advocating was, no, no, wait, wait, it'll come back. Well, it never came back. So we we did some of the right things. One was we immediately started um, to um, a manufacturing program to develop uh, lug frame lightweight bicycles, two lightweights. Um, you might remember the Latour line. And that was done properly, you know, to make a good lug frame bike. Frank Berlando's people worked on this. We actually had developed robotics. Um, we we had uh, developed robots to do the manufacturing of lug frame bicycles, and they were superb. Um, I saw them up front and personal. They were they were great, but didn't come in time. And we got pushed um, in the late 70s because again, manufacturing kept saying no, no, no uh, to the you know the the rest of the arguments from the rest of the executive committee to downsize. Uh, and get real about the market. Um, and we came within a hair's breadth of a Chapter 7. If you know the difference in U.S. law between bankruptcy Chapter 11 and uh, Chapter 7 is liquidation. Hmm. So cha- Chapter 11, yeah. you can be rescued and you can do stuff with it, but Chapter 7, you, you can't be. You can't. So this was about uh, the pushing this. This was of the late seventies. Um, we had no choice, and at the at the time, the management had changed. Now, I'm leaving a lot out. There's a fascinating story as to what occurred in between. But um, as fascinating as it is, it boiled down to um, the company needed to find a way to survive. We had at that time new leadership. Frank had had a heart attack, was sidelined. His son, Edward, his son, his nephew, Edward R. Jr., his brother, Edward's son, was president of the company because that's the way the company was organized. <laughs> um, the, the Schwinn Trust uh, legally required that the president be a male heir. So, uh, and Ed was young, but good. Uh, he tried some modern stuff. Um, we did get to the downsizing too late. Um, in the process, the company um, 
went from make to order to make to stock. So in other words, we produced from the plant and shipped to warehouses. We did no longer made product to ship to dealers. That led to a whole series of other problems that uh, replaced the problem of the of the overexpansion in manufacturing. Jay, and Jay, the bottom line was we were on this. Go ahead. So, so can I just go back before we kind of get on to, to that? Just go backwards a bit because you you mentioned something there that's that's fascinating. Uh, it, it almost is the same problem that happened to, to rally in respect as well. And that is, and you just mentioned it there, is that, that it had to be a male heir. I mean, to me, that's just phenomenally incredible. If, if you're going to run a business, then you have the best people in to run that business. But what you've just said there was, well, in effect, any old fool could come in. So do you think, I'm not saying that anybody <laughs> was a fool here, but do you think that was one of the reasons Schwinn failed in that it was basically had a, a monarchy it didn't have uh, it wasn't you get the best people in it was you had to get a schwinn person in well uh, to an extent that's correct um i'm sure um that uh, richard schwinn uh, edward's brother who's still in the business um he might or might not agree i don't know edward's retired now but um I'm not sure if they would agree, but yeah, you had a Schwinn trust that was written by very, very good lawyers um, at the turn of the century. And it was still legal in, you know, the decade of the 70s and 80s. So uh, from the standpoint of, of uh, you know, that being the genesis, yeah, it, it means like a monarchy that each of the generations, each of the successive generations has got to be pretty good in some way, shape, or form. And Schwinn had been really good for three generations uh, in different degrees. Frank V. was not an engineer. His father, F.W., was, um, you know, and so on. But brilliant in different ways, but, but also this ability to bring in talented people and make them work together and rather than, you know, the, the, the revolving door thing. So yeah, there, there's a great burden in this type type of hierarchy. Um, I don't know today. Obviously, uh, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know today if you could still do this kind of trust, but at the time it was still legal. And uh, yeah, that you probably would look at that as one data point uh, of several things that eventually led to what we have today, which is uh, a Schwinn in name only. It's owned by it's owned by Durrell. It's a division of Pacific. Uh, it's still a good bike, but it's manufactured. Again, it's not the same company. It's four times removed. Um, the What occurred when we were faced with the, the Chapter 7 situation because of this, you know, of what we were, um, we were sitting on a million square feet of manufacturing. And at the time, about 1,800 employees. and. The then leader of the management side was a guy named John Barker, who is a whole story unto himself. He was chief financial officer, became executive vice president, was brought in um, in the latter part of uh, the 70s, along with Bill Austin, a name who you'll remember. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, the two of them convinced Edward 
um, over and above the objections of uh, his his brother-in-law, Peter Davis, who was in the company at the time uh, and in charge of uh, strategic planning, um, he convinced him that we had to shut down domestic immediately, cut the bleeding, and we had to go offshore and import our products. We had to find people to make our bikes. Um, I was in the room when Barker had a meeting with the banks and the, the big bank for decades, it sat on the Schwinn board for years, um, was the Northern Trust in uh, Chicago. And I remember vividly sitting behind John as he, as he leaned across the table and explained to them what he was going to do if they didn't uh, hold off for six months. And that was, he was going to declare chapter seven and they'd be out all the investments they'd made. Mm. Um, they backed off. They gave us six months. Um, then he turned to me and he said, come up with a plan to do it. So without going into the detail, I was the corporate officer who shut down Chicago and moved the product. And at the time, you will remember the Airdyne, um, the exercise product. I, I assume you do. The Airdyne, uh, out of Chicago, the Airdyne uh, was a loss at the margin line of $50 a unit. A loss at the margin line means that you could make more and still lose money. Mm. We took it to Taiwan along with all our bikes. Now, all of our bikes didn't go to Taiwan, but the bulk of them did. Um, we, we, we resourced in six months, giant built a plant dedicated to just making our fitness equipment. But when we started to bring Airdynes in from giant slash Taiwan into our system, the $50 loss at the margin line was totally reversed. And it was a $50 profit for the house. Now, remember, we sold it to a sales company. This goes back to the brilliance of that plan. We sold it to a sales company for a profit who sold it to a dealer for a profit. So um, going offshore and turning our whole bike line and fitness line into break-even to profitability, then fed a system that was just a moneymaker is the best way to say it. It was, you know, we, we then all of a sudden flipped a switch and we were making money on the bikes. We were bringing in good, high quality Schwinn product uh, imported from a giant to our wholesale distribution system who bought them from us on the books, who sold them to authorized dealers, who bought them from the wholesale houses who we owned. So, you know, it was like triple dipping. So this was this was post boom. Um, this is like getting to the late seventies. So just uh, let me ask you a question: were, were you making money during the boom? Yes, yes, but it wasn't as it wasn't as powerful. It wasn't as uh, much money as we made after we shut down the plant. Because during the boom, to run three shifts with 3,000 people and make bikes on this allocation system, we were importing 
just in huge quantities. There was a lot of waste, in other words, in the mm. manufacturing system. Still is profitable. The reason I know is that in the six months I was given to shut down Chicago, part of what I did after <laughs> letting go 1,800 UAW employees um, is I re- maintained a crew that uh, every morning uh, I would meet with and uh, they would go into the plant and they collected everything we could find. And we categorized it because we, we had to sell it. And what we found were shipping crates, air freight shipping crates full of componentry from these various people that we were buying stuff from to make bikes that had never been opened. <laughs> and so uh, we, in, in hindsight, we were, uh, as we, we made order out of this you know, chaos um, that was cleaning out this, you know, it's like anything, if you've ever experienced cleaning out a closet, just imagine cleaning out a million square feet of manufacturing and finding all this mm-hmm. stuff in storage. Um, we mm-hmm. were able to, to our amazement, determine that, you know, they were air freighting. Purchasing was doing his job. It was air freighting and stuff we needed to make bikes. But then in turn, the production control system was broken, was not automated. Um, it wasn't your MRP systems of today. It was manual work. And the stuff got lost in warehouse. And so you were paying all these premium prices to get stuff in that ended up sitting on the books and we didn't discover all that until we uh, really had to shut down the operation and clean things up. So um, there were great inefficiencies during the boom that restricted the quality of the pro- of the profit. There was a lot of money made, but there could have been more. When we got to the system that was uh, developed after we shut down manufacturing, it was much more transparent and it was, um, easier for us to, if you will, manage the process. And so we made more money after than, than during. Mm. So anybody who's been paying attention to the dates here will realize that it was 69, 70, 71. That's when it was ramping up. Um, it was gone by 74, 75. And we've missed out a year there. So we've missed out 1973. And of course, 1973 is the year that everybody assumes uh, created the boom. And that was the oil crisis. But of course, me and you know, it wasn't the oil crisis that created the boom. So you you tell me, I know this because I've written a book about it, but you tell me in your words where you think the boom came from and then why did it disappear? Well, it came from different catalysts, different um, things in the economy. So the original boom started in 71 and came out of a number of factors. The industry um, going back into the early 60s had really gotten together. Uh, Now, remember, you you had eight or nine domestic manufacturers plus a bunch of wholesalers they were all in a group called the Bicycle Manu- or, I'm sorry, the Bicycle, uh, not Manufacturers Association, because they were a, a, a part of it. Um, BIA, Bicycle Industry Association. And each of the groups, BMA, Bicycle Manufacturers, Bicycle Wholesalers, Retailers, all were contributing monies into the Bicycle Institute. Uh, as a domestic bike manufacturer, those nine manufacturers were contributing a dime a bike. And that money was being well spent. 
because during the Eisenhower years, um, there were several things that occurred, and that was promotion of bikeways and bike paths. Um, there were uh, at least two full-time bike advocates paid by the industry, uh, Keith Kingbay, and I cannot remember who the other one was. Um, out there, we were getting headlines. And as circumstances you know, evolve, Ike had a heart attack. And you don't, you may not remember Dwight David Eisenhower, but uh, of course he was a great hero of World War II. Um, he was a great hero to the American people. So when he had this heart attack, it was a big deal. And he had a cardiologist, Dr. White. And Dr. White was an avid cyclist. So now all of a sudden you've got Dr. White telling Ike, who was a golfer, to get on his bike. Well, guess what kind of bike he got? <laughs> um, I mean, he got a Schwinn bike, obviously. That was the leading bike. But meanwhile, um, Ike gets better, and um, and the, the country's applauding. And Dr. White um, is now pictured for months riding his bicycle to, to the hospital. Riding, and uh, Dr. White was uh, of advanced years then. So it was, you know, it was kind of an Einstein effect. Uh, it was this um, older MD who had, in the eyes of the public, saved our, our beloved president, who was Dwight David Eisenhower. He was beloved. Um, and uh, gave him this new lifestyle. At the same time, bikeways, bike paths are being promoted, that the industry is getting a lot of visibility. And there's a lot of interest in physical fitness and health enhancement, which is part and parcel of that along with the, the, the demographics. A whole new generation was coming along. We call them baby boomers today. But this is the younger lead of the baby boom generation. And so in 71, as I described it, you remember 68 was a blip, went up to 7.5 million. Then the market went down in 69, went down in 70. 71 was the start of the bike boom. And the market mm -hmm. went to almost 9 million, 8.8. .8. It was a huge increase. And that, I do believe, in hindsight, was driven by the market factors of health enhancement, enjoyment. The bicycle was getting popular among uh, the older baby, I'm sorry, the not older, younger baby boomer. You're talking 17, 18, 19-year-old. Um, and you had that driving the market um, as you get into the 72, 73 period. Now, Keep in mind that um, Eisenhower, uh, you know, eventually is is uh, termed out, term limited, and we end up with a a pretty chaotic situation in the in the economy that moves into the seventy two seventy three period and the oil embargo when the industry um, actually hit fifteen point three million. And these are all 20-inch wheel and larger, by the way, all these numbers that I'm quoting. This doesn't mm -hmm. include any kids' bikes because the industry didn't count them in those days. They only counted 20-inch wheel and larger. So these numbers are all 20-inch wheel and larger. The 15.2.8 million in 1973, Carlton, has never been achieved again by the U.S. industry. We've never come close. 
Now, exactly how 2020 comes out, we haven't seen numbers, but you got to look at the whole year. Up to this point, 73 has never been exceeded before. Um, what happened in 73 was an oil embargo and lines. Cars were lined up at gas stations. Gas stations put out red flags when they were out of gas, white flags when they had gas. Many states like California, it was every other day. Based on your license plate, the odd numbers were, you know, one day, the even numbers were another day. So you had another factor in 70, end of 72 into 73 that drove this. Keep in mind also in 72, 73, you had wage and price control, something that this country hasn't seen since. This was under Nixon. Wage and price control was simple. Um, nobody could raise prices. Nobody could pay more money to labor. Prices couldn't change all the way through retail, wholesale to retail manufacturing. You just could not increase a price, couldn't lower it, couldn't increase it. You had to keep it frozen. Um, and uh, wages were frozen. So um, you also had in the mix, as you get into the 72, 73 period, 74, um, bicycles today uh, in the U.S., you'll see these, these uh, news articles that say bicycles are like toilet paper. Back in the 72, 73, 74 period, it was bicycles are like gas cans. Because people you know, were really having a problem. They were going to the gas station, getting a can of gas. Uh, so the bicycle became like a gas can, and that's the way the press looked at it. Um, mixed in with this, these, these economic issues of wage and price control. Bicycles just became, you know, not only it, it wasn't an affordability issue, it became more viable, like they are today, is for transportation. So it started out as a demographic shift and a response to advertising and promotion of bicycles as good for you and a lot of fun to bicycles being an alternate and a means of an alternate to the car and something you could do to conserve gas and uh, use if your automobile uh, was out of gas. You could get so to you've work. Got all these, you've got all these amazing factors, many of which are still applicable today. And you've also got the you know, like the environmental factors, so like the Earth Day factors, which were coming in at that, that point in time as well. So if you've got all these amazing factors and then you have the, the accelerant of the, the Arab-Israeli uh, oil embargo, how on earth did the bike boom fizzle out? You had all these amazing things going for them, the end for of it, the industry. What, what happened? Yeah. Well, um, if you look at the charting, again, 1974 at 14.1 million 20-inch wheel and larger, 1975, 7.294, 7.3 million, um, a 50%, 49.9% shearing of the market. Uh, what economists will tell you when they look at that and the years that succeeded is saturation. You know, that's the that's the first thing that that you look at with something that's uh, this large. That in the boom years, from seventy one to seventy four, we pumped the market full with large numbers in the market. We didn't have the population you have today, so the per thousand penetration was pretty high. 
And um, you got to a point where several things occurred. One is saturation, but also the pressures of the the wage and price control, the artificial uh, restrictions on the market, the um, oil embargo, the fear of war, the fear of losing the, the flow of oil all disappeared. So whatever drove it in the beginning and drove it in the middle and the end, all those factors changed when we got to uh, 1975, probably aided and abetted or maybe driven by the fact that we simply had saturated. Mm-hmm. We just sold so many bikes per thousand that, that people just weren't going to buy anymore. It took a while. And if you look at the market from 75 forward, it is a slow build. You know, it, it's an increase, but there's nothing like we, we experienced in the boom. And as I said, 73 has never been repeated by the American industry. And maybe something in the in the quarter uh, from uh, April, May, June, maybe not. Again, you got to look at it as a whole year. Uh, I tend to think, no, 2020 will not exceed uh, the spike in 73. And twenty-inch wheel and larger, it'll be awesome. But it just—it's just not going to. It's just not going to. It's and I, what I'm saying is, it's not another bike boom. Jay, I, I definitely want to pick you up on that. But right now, we're going to go for uh, an ad, uh, an advert break. So take it away, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen. USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, thanks, David. And we're still here with 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 Jay Townley. Jay is absolutely the man to go to to talk about um, the 1970s bike boom because he was absolutely there. He was one of the architects of the boom. He was you know sitting in in the boardrooms uh, with with uh, sales projections going off uh, left, right, and center being exceeded, and then of course the, the the bike boom then collapsed as Jay was talking before the break. And then Jay then talked about. Uh, the today's bike boom. So that's where I want to start off, Jay. So you were saying there when I rudely cut you off was you don't think this will be anywhere near. And I, I kind of agree with you there because we have only got, uh, well, shortly coming up one quarter's figures and we need at least 
in effect, four years of the boom to get it near because the bike boom back then was you know, a multi-year thing. But where do you where do you see the boom fitting into the industry now? Because again, it's it comes as a pretty much of a surprise. Yeah, it it came as a surprise, but I guess it it shouldn't have um, in retrospect. And that's unfortunately what a lot of looking at the numbers is 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 looking back. Um, the you know the demand for bicycles um, in the uh, unfortunately the era of COVID nineteen uh, is totally different than anything we we experienced in the seventies, um, and it starts with uh, social distancing and the ability uh, of of folks to get from point A to point B without getting on uh, a, a means of transportation that's got a crowded environment. So, you know, that's part of this. Um, in the cities, uh, whether it's London or New York or Minneapolis or, or Chicago, um, you've got a situation where folks uh, are really aware that um, social distancing uh, means you've got to maintain six-foot distances, uh, and that hasn't changed in all the discussion. And you can't do that on a crowded bus uh, or a crowded um, subway train. So what's the alternative? And uh, the automobile was not an alternative for a lot of reasons. So the bicycle became an alternative, particularly uh, if walking uh, was was not what could be used uh, on a frequent basis. So that's a different piece than we've had in the past. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad piece, but it's a, it's a different piece. Um, you also had... Uh, quarantines uh, that, you know, extended into 11, 12, to so some of them are still going, 14, 15 weeks. Um, people went stir crazy, particularly, again, in the dense populated areas. So uh, getting out and walking is good, but um, getting on a bicycle and enjoying the fun of a bike, social distancing while you're getting some exercise, being able to do that with the family um, certainly became very attractive. And the other piece that goes with um, what you and I have seen in our markets of new bikes being just you know sold out. Um, mm. I was talking to Brad Hughes, one of my partners out in California yesterday, and he said that the targets in the Walmarts are still, uh, there's no bikes in the bike sections. I've seen the same thing here uh, in the Midwest. Uh, Mike Fritz, our other partner, has seen the same thing in the Chicago area market. So it's low to high. Uh, Bradley's working right now at uh, a, a giant store and a Trek store um, and enjoying the Dickens out of it. But he said that, you know, mid to low priced in kids' bikes, there's nothing. Um, and, the, and then you get to the other issue of uh, the shortage, which we could discuss, uh, if you'd like, as a separate, separate topic. But um, this doesn't have the makings of a sustainable bike boom because of the components, the, the drivers. And when we get to the end, when we get to the, the light at the end of the tunnel, um, the good news is beginning to mount. So I think it's going to be a better market. Um, if you aren't aware of it, the U.S. House of Representatives Transportation Committee just passed out its bill on the five-year transportation bill, the Senate 
uh, did its version of this uh, some time ago. And uh, the League of American Bicyclists has done an excellent uh, overview of what the bike world got, what the advocates in the bike world got. And essentially, uh, on the House side, um, with uh, the, the leadership now in the two committees involved, uh, with Earl Blumenauer, Representative Blumenauer, who has been a great bike advocate, now being a committee chair, uh, the bike world got just about everything it wanted and asked for including more money. That doesn't mean it's going to get it, but that's what it got in the bill. Um, surprisingly, the Senate version that came out months ago uh, is a uh, very well-funded, generous effort to the transportation community, including just about everything the bicycling world was looking for. Um, how that will end up, we don't know. But um, what I'm saying is that the members of Congress, at least in these very convoluted, uh, disruptive times, both chambers have looked favorably upon what it's going to provide, if it can, for funding for bicycling going forward and also for the features of that funding, how it's used. So I take that as great news in a very sad time so that uh, the the government is uh, maybe arguing about a lot of other stuff, but at least there's agreement um, mm. in our representative side in providing more money, more services, more detail on how you use those services, what you do to improve uh, the, the whole of the cycling, walking world. Um, but no, none of that was to do with COVID. None of that was, this has all no. just come about quite separate to that. Correct. So it, whether it was influenced or not, it could have been. But no, it came about separately. So now you back up to the influences of, of the COVID-19 and society in the market today on top of that. And I think we'll end up with um, a more viable and larger market. Uh, electric bikes certainly will play a bigger role in the U.S. as they have in Europe. They haven't yet in the U.S., but they will because the word coming back you know, as to what consumers are saying, um, you got a lot of a lot of older U.S. consumers that have not ridden bikes before, or we call them latent cyclists. They haven't ridden in years that mm. uh, are getting back on bikes and they're finding the electric bike is a neat way to get back into the active cycling world um, and not have to be in the greatest of shape. You can work your way up to it. I mean, there's all sorts of pluses. Electric bikes are fun. Face it. They're as fun as a regular bike to the people that, that uh, are um, uh, not used to riding or haven't ridden in years. So I think you've got multiple factors in society, um, in the demographics, and now in the, uh, in the advocacy and governmental support side that will all end up with a net gain when we come out of the, the current crisis. And Jay, let, let's just let's just step back a bit first, and that I'm, I want to ask you about just your two or three word uh, description of say the previous five to ten years. So it was a it was a big shock to the industry that you know the industry is one of the few industries that's actually prospered during uh, the coronavirus crisis. Um, but it was a surprise. It was April when it hit. 
So as far as I can tell, people were not reporting fantastic sales uh, in January, February, March. Uh, April, it picked up. And then May, it went ballistic. We, we know that. That's when people just started selling out of everything. And as far as we can tell, it's, it's been a fantastic June as well. But go, go before that. So how would you describe the industry in health terms in the previous five years? All right. Um, in the previous five years, flat. 2019. Hmm. I, I would have said depressed, but yeah. Yeah, it's depressed, flat. Um, the period um, through uh, 2018, going back five years, was flat. No growth. 2019 was down. And that's not, that's not been talked about a lot, but uh, imports were down 25% in units, about 18% in dollars. The U.S. market was down 19 to uh, 20%. So what hasn't been talked about is the devastating effect of punitive tariffs on the American bike industry in 2019. So what we saw after... March 15th, going forward, and particularly as you say, April, May, was all of this response to social distancing, to getting later in, in uh, April, going in, uh, go, I'm sorry, May, getting into June, uh, the reaction to uh, the quarantines or the lockdowns, um, all came in 70 days. Mm. But it came out of a market where um, in 2019 was a bad year. It was a bad year brought about by, as I said, the only factor that impacted the market in 2019 that could have brought about these uh, severe drops were the punitive tariffs. And I don't know if you followed the numbers, but... Um, Import and this again goes to the the simple fact that in round numbers, ninety five to ninety six percent of all American bicycles in this market are imported. Ninety percent of imports came from China, from the PRC. So, no matter what the mechanics are of how you deal with that, look at you know there was there were low numbers from Vietnam negligible numbers from Cambodia, Thailand, um, and still negligible numbers from, uh, from the European community. So we had a, we had a market that was, is dependent on import. Domestic is uh, 5% or less, including the uh, domestically made e-bikes or assembled. They're not manufactured here, but um, assembled. So the market prior to uh, the March 18th, March 15th event going through the, that quarter was down. Prior to that, it was flat with no growth. Sad to say, but so, that, that's the facts. No, no, no. I I'm, I'm completely agree. I mean, it was a depressed market and it has been for a good number of years. So this has come as a complete shock, a complete uh, bolt out of the blue, but something that is absolutely necessary for the health of the industry because it's it's had a, a number of years. I mean, the, the perception out there is that the industry has been booming for many, many years. And the reality is very, very different. So now we actually genuinely have an actual 
genuine boom. Yeah, it's it's a different boom than the seventies, but it yes, I mean it, it, you look at it for what it is, and it's a genuine boom. Um, one of the factors, most interestingly to me, is bicycles that have not been ridden for years are being taken into bike shops from, they're being dug out of garages, they're being taken out of basements, brought down from attics, taken into bike shops, and, and the owners are saying, please, fix these tires, make this bike work, I want to ride it. So the American consumer is not just buying new bikes from any source they can get them, but they've got bikes and they're taking them into bike shops and wanting them repaired if you quickly check with shops that you know in the United States, I think you'll find the bulk of them are no longer taking service work because they're extended out so far that they just have to stop for a while and catch up. Yeah, come come back in September. Um, yeah, come, well, I know. I, I, I'm sure I'm sure it's extended. Uh, I don't know if it's September or not, but um, yeah, it is a long time. I mean, uh, again, I'm, Brad Hughes, one of my partners, uh, says one of the shops he works for. Uh, is doing just that. They just uh, are refusing um, uh, to take any more work and telling people, you know, c- call us or email us and we'll let you know when our service uh, queue opens up and we're able to take more service work. Right now we can't take service work. So clearly the, the impetus, we, we, we know absolutely the, you know, the, the 70s bike boom was multifactorial, um, came out of nowhere. This one, we absolutely know why, why it's come about. It's it's a it's a virus. Uh, it, it's it's an absolutely one factor that has led to this. Um, but because of that, if if I mean I'm saying this is a, an if, so it's a bad thing. But if uh, the economy comes back, if cars get back on the road, if we we survive uh, this crisis, uh, of course we all want to do that. But that does that not mean that uh, the bike industry goes back to how it was in the depressed state of, of 2019? It, it, in answer to your question, that's where I come up with the no, I think it'll be a net gain in that I agree with you 100% that cyclists that are out there now and we get to um, the end of the light at the end of the tunnel. And that, you know, that is to me, the the coronavirus is contained, there is treatment and there's a cure. So people be, can be confident in knowing that they can they can get a vaccine. Um, and cars get back on the road, just as they have, we've seen this occur in China. That's going to scare some of the cyclists that have gotten out and have enjoyed the, the, the low vehicular traffic are going to get scared off the road. They're going to be scared for their kids as as car traffic builds up. But, and it's a comma, but some of the communities like Seattle that have already um, made it clear that, yeah, we get back to a new reset and, and we've got society back up and, and operating and the economy operating again, we are, we are already dedicating more road space, more uh, miles to pedestrian and non-vehicular, to um, human-powered transportation. So this is where this is where the pop-ups are coming up. So the the, the pop-up cycleways are getting put in in many cities around the world, not just America, but around the world. 
And so you you think that is going to be that's a that's a highly positive thing because some of those may stay, they may become permanent. That's yeah, that's my right now looking at the the cities that have said they are permanent is net gain. Um, there will be cities where they exist today as pop-ups. The, uh, you know, New York is an example. I can't see them keeping all the miles they've opened up, but Mayor de Blasio is going to keep some of it. He may. Uh, but if he doesn't, Seattle has. Uh, Los Angeles is making, um, you know, is having discussions about keeping some of it. I think what you'll see is a net gain across the board. And it's a net gain in use, a net gain in um, the embracing of the style, the lifestyle, and the buying habit and the use habit. Now, it's not going to be what I don't think it's going to be what it is today. It's going to be some lower number, but that will be a net gain plus the fact that, um, much to my surprise, the Congress of the United States is currently showing support. And I sat through the LAB webinar um, that um, uh, Karen Whitaker, their vice president of uh, governmental affairs, ran yesterday explaining the House bill that just came out Monday um, that's going to the floor. Now, there's again, there's a lot of things that could change. It's Washington. It's the Congress. Uh, it's the legislative process. But um, it's the uh, most aggressive financially. And from the standpoint of, of the cycling and walking communities, getting what they've asked for, it's the most aggressive legislation she's ever seen. And Carol's, Karen's been around a long time. So have I. Um, it's more money. It's more emphasis. It's more logical approaches to um, you know making this work at the state level. It's correcting errors. And this with the fact that the Senate did this surprising piece of legislation uh, some months ago. I mean, everybody was astounded that follows this at what the Senate did, and then it's very quietly sat. Um, as I say, no matter what comes out of the political picture, if uh, these two chambers keep moving in the same direction and we end up with uh, a net improvement in the amounts of federal monies available and how that money is spent, that adds to the net gain theory that we're going to see a net improvement in the bike market. Now, Carlton, you and I both know that we've studied this. You know how flat the market's been in the last five to 10 years uh, in the U.S. Uh, the e-bike was on the verge of changing pieces of that when the tariffs hit. Um, and they're now off, by the way. The e-bike the e in the U.S. Uh, was uh, on the exceptions list. But now we're in the midst of all of the you know, the ramifications of the supply chain issues, um, which, again, the industry faces going forward. But when that all settles in, um, you've got the potential here for a net gain, not a boom, but a net gain. And that, in turn, would contribute to um, a, a projection for the future that's more Hopeful and, um, and from a practical standpoint, uh, more improvement in use of the bicycle, more bicycle riding participation than we had prior to uh, you know the the pandemic. So just to put this into perspective and into into percentage terms, the nineteen seventies 
bike boom, which is roughly four years. So 45 million bikes were sold over that period in time. It basically doubled the market uh, year on year. Um, We're we're talking, your prediction um, for this this bike boom is perhaps, I'm going to put words into your your mouth here, but we're going to see a doubling of the market maybe for two to three months, but then it'll settle down after that, whereas the 70s bike boom was a year on year doubling, which which is a hugely different factor. Yeah, I think essentially um, with a qualification that, you know, what will be, um, I'll need to see some more numbers, but based on what's occurred up to this point, I will accept what you've said as uh, a good summary of, of, you know, what I, I've laid out at this point. So yes, uh, the, the short term for the bike business could be a doubling. Um, I, I tend to think it's going to be a little less than that, but it's going to be a, uh, an uptick in improvement statistically when we get to the end of 2020. Um, and the 2021 going forward is uh, going to have some growth to it so that we can work our way slowly out of this uh, funk of flatness that the business has been in historically over the last decade. So in in my book, Bike Boom, when I interviewed you for for that, uh, you talked about, or I was asking you about the the cycleway, the bikeway uh, ethos that was growing in the US at that time. And you said, uh, that in effect, if the U.S. had have had two years more of the same kind of growth, so 15 million bike sales per year uh, for another couple of years, then all of that uh, incredibly uh, impressive, you know, 100,000 mile of bikeways through the whole U.S., uh, all of that uh, would have then come to fruition. You'd have seen a completely different United States of America if you'd have had a, another couple of years of, of the, the bike boom going forward. So can you put that into perspective for today? Is, is there an equivalent that we need to see a certain number of weeks, months, number of bikeways put in to make sure that we actually consolidate the growth that we lost in the 1970s bike boom when it just you know, halved overnight? Yeah, I, I think that you know, <laughs> um, we're, we can look back and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to... to <laughs> theorize about what had happened in the past. But um, going forward, as I say, net gain, um, I think that's more probable at this point uh, than not. And there are more factors, uh, including something we have not discussed. Um, Some very smart folks have made it very clear that uh, while we may have ignored science during the coronavirus, uh, we can't afford to do that relative to the sustainability or the climate crisis. Um, it's becoming more, um, the climate crisis is coming back as uh, being talked about and we see it in more discussion now uh, relative to what uh, it will, what role it will play relative to uh, the pandemic and the end of the pandemic. Uh, I think that's a factor that will play into um the net gain in bicycle usage, I think the metric to look at 
Carlton, in the U.S. going forward, is bicycle riding participation. Um, it's not bikeways and bike paths or the mileage of same. Um, I think that, uh, again, I could be wrong, but I think what we need to focus on is bicycle riding participation, which, last, according to the National Sporting Goods Association, who... Um, you can argue about whether their 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 panels or the you know the methodology they're using is absolutely the right one. I like their numbers because they got thirty years of history using the same methodology. So you got good trend lines, good solid trending. Um, bicycle riding participation, according to the NSGA, in twenty nineteen was up marginally. It was up like. 1.8%. Um, it was up the previous year, about the same. So you've had riding participation creeping up in a flat period. Then we had this decline in 2019, driven by, I think, by tariffs, punitive tariffs. But it, 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 the bottom line is market was off 20 to 25%. Um, and bicycle riding participation scooched up a little bit. Net gain. So that's the metric that gives me hope that all of the economic and social factors, the, uh, the factors that, that are being driven by demographics, are going to uh, move forward and, and create a net gain for the bike business. I would watch that metric because I think it's also indicative of these people, uh, the good citizens digging bikes out of basements and getting them repaired right now. Because bicycle riding participation is agnostic as to where you buy it or how you get it. It's just that you got it. You're riding a bike. It's more it's more butts on bikes. Um, and I think that is the number we should be looking at. And it also, by the way, includes rideshare. It doesn't care if you own it. Just that you rode it. So uh, that's the number. And I think we're going to see all these factors marginally increasing not just because of the factors coming out of the coronavirus, i.e. social distancing, concern about riding in, in uh, cheek-to-jowl and mass transportation, um, but you've got a younger generation of Americans in particular who are absolutely dedicated to seeing the, the climate crisis met and defeated. And they're becoming a political voice as well in this country. So they are folks that uh, will be able to vote with pocketbooks. Um, I hate to say this, but, but they also, if you look carefully, are a, a large percentage of uh, who are participating in the protests. There's a, change, there's a change in the demographics of this country that we've been told to pay attention to. And um, those demographics are, uh, I believe, going to help with the net gain. And I'm sorry for this long, convoluted explanation, but uh, I think they're going to contribute to this next gain, net gain in bicycling and bicycle use, human transportation use. And I think the metric we look at is, is bicycle riding participation. And it, in, a, in a bad year in 2019, it was up 1.8% which to me says, yeah, it's there. Now, coronavirus, all of the issues of this, this very sad uh, and, and disruptive 
series of events. But uh, I think the metric we watch at the end of 20, uh, 2020 as we get to 2021 is what's bicycle riding participation during the year? How does it, how does it look relative to the trend, the 30-year trend? That you could you could use the NSGA data for. So we've both been around a, a, a long time, Jay. You you you're definitely longer than me. Um, but we, we both probably weren't. We definitely weren't expecting uh, this to happen. So we, we're both incredibly astounded and and gratified that it has. So to round out today's uh, conversation and and to fill people in really on 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 where you've got all this fascinating information from. Because we we heard about your your Schwinn background and your bike shop background, but tell us to end the today's show about what the company that you run today. Oh, you have been running for a number of years. So your your I described you in a, in my book as a data freak. So <laughs> you're providing statistics to to the industry. So tell us about that and where people can find out the information. So give us your website address. Okay. Well, um, today um, I uh, am a partner in Human Powered Solutions, um, and my official working title is Resident Futurist. But my, my <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah, my responsibility is data and stats, um, and uh, to use that, employ that to the extent I can to really have the conversation we just had. You know, to look at what does the future look like. Um, our website is uh, www.humanpoweredsolutions.com, um, and we are at this point uh, in the midst of uh, working on and promoting a consumer survey, a primary consumer survey, a syndicated survey product, uh, where we're working with the industry to get subscribers uh, to a uh multi-wave survey that will go out at minimum three times in the next 12 months to uh, survey a big enough block of consumers that we've got a 2% accuracy uh, or reliability in the survey work. And what we're trying to define are uh, really asking consumers, uh, you know, have they bought a bike? How did they use it? Where did they get it? Uh, is it used? You know, all of the questions of how they acquired it. And then what's their intention going forward? And then re-ask that in about six months. And then re-ask that mm. in 12 months. And you understand. So that would have been fascinating at any time. But now it's going to be doubly, doubly fascinating because we've got this huge influx of new people in. And it'll be fascinating to see how many of the people that you, you, you managed to grab who are brand new and how many we've still got in six months' time. That'll be incredibly useful to know. Exactly. And that's the reason we're doing it, is uh, these are unprecedented times. Um, as long as I've lived, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, as long as you've lived, you've never seen anything like this. Uh, the bike industry, the bike world, has seen nothing like this. And um, we, as uh, folks that like stats and data, we're used to uh, looking at the past. And what we'd like to do is talk to consumers about not just the immediate past, but intention for the future. But measure that and compare it over six-month time frames through the uh, first half of 2021. Uh, and for exactly the reasons, Carlton, that, that you, know, you perceive, that 
this is this is the only way we're going to get a real handle on uh, a lot of the dynamics that are occurring, including the difference between you know the economic uh, e- e- the economy and the economic influence of factors, the environmental factors, the age factors, uh, the demographic drives um, in the United States, um, and how planners in our business can really uh, begin to think about what the consumer is intending to do and react to consumer intention. Jay, that has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. This is going to be a longer than normal normal show. But then again, we've, we've discussed the 1970s. We've discussed coronavirus coming up to date now. And, and I just loved that quote before where you're saying you've never seen anything in your lifetime uh, like this. And that's that's saying something because you were right there at the epicenter of the 1970s bike boom. So, Jay, thank you ever so much uh, for being on today's show. You're more than welcome. Thanks to Jay Townley there. And this has been another longer lockdown special of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, brought to you in association with Jensen USA. As always, show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. Thank you for listening to today's show. The episode I promised with Chris Boardman, Superintendent Andy Cox and Professor Rachel Aldred uh, minus Chris Boardman, uh, will be along just as soon as I figure out a way to engineer it without Chris Boardman. Uh, meanwhile, get out there and ride. <laughs> <laughs>